Welcome to Ebenezer's Podcast, a podcast about hearing, understanding, and applying the Word of God to our lives. My name is Leighton Erickson, and I'm Ebenezer's Lead Pastor. Thanks for joining us today. Please check out our website at ebenezerbaptist.ca to connect with us and learn more about our ministries. I hope you enjoy the message. Well, good morning, and welcome once again to our worship service. My name is Cal, and thank you for making us a part of your Sunday morning. It's always good to be able to gather together, even if it's virtually, for this time of worship and celebration. Earlier this week, I was asked, when it comes to worship, what style do you prefer? Charismatic or Baptist? I didn't hesitate at all. Baptist, hands down. Okay, I get it. Grown. At least give me credit for trying. Now, before we get into things, just a reminder that health guidelines now allow us to have 150 in the building, so we're ready to welcome you back to our in-person services. This time of isolation and being apart has reminded me just how important and necessary it is for us to be together, not only at a Sunday morning worship service, but in whatever way we can and every way we can. So if you haven't yet begun to re-engage with your Ebenezer family, can I challenge you to do so? Now this morning, we continue our series through the letter of 1 Peter, with a stop at 1 Peter 4, verses 1 to 11. Now in case you've missed some of these messages, or if you're joining us for the first time, let me just take a couple of minutes to review where we've been. Remember that Peter wrote this letter to Christ's followers who were scattered, exiled, and under extreme persecution. These were difficult, perhaps historically some of the most difficult times to be a Christian. The government was against them. Society was against them. Their neighbors were against them. The culture they lived in was against them. You know, Kermit the Frog once sang, it's not that easy being green. Well, in Peter's time, it wasn't easy being a Christ follower or a Christian. Now, it's in these circumstances that Paul, or sorry, that Peter writes this letter to remind them of one simple but profound fact. You are chosen, and you are chosen by God. Let that sink in for a moment. This is not a schoolyard pickup game of basketball where the two best players go one by one choosing their teams. You, today, if you have made that decision to follow Jesus, have been chosen by God. And being chosen by God is the foundation of our identity. No longer do we need to define ourselves by either the outward chaos that we might be going through, nor the inward turmoil we might sometimes feel. Who we are begins with the fact, let let me say that again, it begins with the fact that we are chosen by God. As God's chosen people, we have hope in the midst of suffering. As God's chosen people, we are called to live holy lives, lives lived differently for the glory and the purposes of God. And as God's chosen people, we have been given a new identity as God builds us up together into a spiritual temple. These are the themes that have framed and shaped Paul's letter, Peter's letter. Sorry. Now, over the past several weeks, we have looked at Peter's call to us as found in 1 Peter 2, verse 12, to Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And Peter has taken extensive time in the area of submission as one of those ways that we live good lives. Submission to the government. Submission to our bosses or our managers. Submission in the home. 
and submission as a general principle for all Christ followers. Last week, Pastor Layton reminded us of some of the key reasons why we are to live these good lives, especially in front of those who would be hostile to the good news of Jesus. Now, Pastor Layton, because of time, didn't have the opportunity to fully develop the closing part of his section, which was 1 Peter 3, verses 17 to 22. But we saw in this section that Peter refers to the example of Jesus when it comes to doing good despite the persecution and suffering one might be experiencing. Jesus is our ultimate example, not only of living a good life in the midst of suffering, but how God will treat those who do good in the same way. And that brings us to our passage this morning, 1 Peter 4, verses 1 to 11. Now, I won't read it in its entirety now, but we'll work our way through it as we go. But let me just begin by reading the first part of verse 1. Here Peter writes, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Why is attitude so important? And I think this time of COVID has raised our awareness regarding some of the bad or the negative attitudes we might carry. It might just be me, but and you, maybe you feel the same way, that there seems to be more tension between people, between friends, between siblings, between co-workers, between parents and children, and even between spouses. Early in the pandemic, I think sometime last year when we were all asked to stay home as much as possible, Michelle and I were sitting in the living room and I told her how thankful I was that since we were sort of isolating, I was glad that I, had, I could isolate with someone I enjoyed being with. Well, Michelle didn't even look up as she replied, well, must be nice. What has your attitude been during this challenging and difficult time? What is your attitude towards the government and health officials? What is your attitude towards the limitations and restrictions that they've asked us to abide by? What is your attitude towards those who don't see this pandemic the way you do and perhaps are living in ways that you wouldn't? Now let's go back to Peter's time. What would your attitude be if you were facing the kind of persecution and suffering the believers were in Peter's day? Anger? Frustration? Defiance? Resignment? Apathy? Now I'm sure the believers in Peter's time felt that whole range of possible emotions and I'm sure they held a whole range of possible attitudes. As, he, as Peter begins to wrap up this major section on living good, uh, living good lives and, and, and living in submission, Peter moves now from the example of Christ at the end of chapter 3 and now brings in another aspect of how we need to follow Christ by taking on or arming ourselves with the attitude of Christ. Not only do we need to follow the example of Christ in his actions, we need to follow the example of Christ in his attitude. Now, the word here for attitude is ennoia, which is defined as a settled way of thinking or feeling about something that is reflected in a person's behavior. It's what a person has in their mind, what they have in mind that reveals itself in their actions and behavior. Now, there's a strong and direct connection between our attitudes and our actions. And too often, our focus is on doing the things that Christ did and the things that Christ called us to without realizing that Christ called us to be as much as or even before he calls us to do. We need to adopt the mind and the heart of Christ first. We need to have the right attitude 
and allow our actions, our behaviors, and our speech to flow from that right attitude. It's possible to do the right things, but to do them with the wrong attitude, at least for a while. But eventually, what's inside our wrong or our negative attitude will emerge. So, Peter not only gives us the example of Jesus as the example we need to emulate in our action, but he also draws our attention to the attitude of Jesus and tells us we need to arm ourselves with, this, with his attitude. Adopting the attitude of Christ will help us live out the actions of Christ. So, what was the attitude of Jesus that Peter calls us to arm ourselves with? And then what positive action should that attitude lead to? Well, let's take a look. Let's begin with understanding what attitude did Christ have? What attitude is it that Peter calls us to arm ourselves with? Now, Peter doesn't explicitly say here what that attitude is. But I think if we look at even just what Peter writes here in this particular letter, we can kind of form an idea of Jesus' attitude. Listen as I read some of the verses that describe the attitude of Jesus from 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1, verses 3 to 4. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a, into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. 1 Peter 1, verses 10 to 11. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstance to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. 1 Peter 1, verses 18 to 20. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. 1 Peter 2 verse 4, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. 1 Peter 2 verses 21 to 24, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at, at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. And 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the Spirit. Now, with those verses as a backdrop, here's how I would describe the attitude of Christ that Peter calls us to arm ourselves with. Jesus lived with an eternal perspective and trusted that God would one day judge all things righteously and justly. That was his attitude. That was his perspective. That's what he had in mind, especially when he was faced with suffering and persecution. This attitude of Jesus has been alluded to throughout Peter's letter, but it seems as though Peter is making this closing argument for the attitude of Jesus here when he exhorts us to arm ourselves and live with the same attitude. You are suffering. Jesus suffered as well. So when we suffer, we need to arm ourselves with the same attitude Jesus had. 
He took an eternal perspective and trusted that God would one day justly judge all things. And we need to arm ourselves with this same attitude. And if we do, Peter in his passage shows us here three things that this attitude allows us to do in the midst of persecution and suffering. First, arming ourselves with the attitude of Jesus, an eternal perspective, and trusting that God will judge justly, allows us then to endure for the eternal. Peter says in uh, chapter 4, verses 1 to 2, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Just like Jesus, when we suffer for the sake of Christ, we recognize that our temporary suffering has eternal implications and eternal impact, and it is for the eternal that we endure. Like, why did Jesus put up with, so to speak, with the suffering and persecution that came his way? Was that persecution and suffering unfair? Was it undeserved? Was it unjust? Well, of course it was. So why did he endure it? Well, I think there were three reasons. First, he endured suffering for the glory of God. He didn't draw attention to himself. Primary was the glory of God. Second, he endured suffering for the will of God. His own desires, his own plans, his own wants were put aside in order to fulfill God's plans and purposes for him. And the third reason why he endured the suffering and persecution was simply his love for us. Jesus knew that the suffering he endured in the present would ultimately complete and fulfill God's plan that brought salvation to each and every one of us. Now imagine for a moment what might have happened if Jesus chose not to endure for the eternal. Imagine that Jesus decided he wanted the attention and the glory for himself. That's how he was tempted uh, in Matthew chapter 4 before he entered in, into, into ministry. Imagine Jesus decided that what he wanted was more important than what God wanted. In the Garden of, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus' humanity showed when, knowing the physical suffering he was about to endure, he asked this of God, he said, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup or this task be taken from me. But in the same breath, he finished that thought saying, But it's not my will, but it's your will. Or in, other, in translations, but not my will, but yours be done. Jesus, because of his attitude, was able to endure for the eternal. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12, he said, let us run, the, run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Arming ourselves with the attitude of Jesus will allow us then to endure for the eternal. We can endure to bring glory to God. We endure to fulfill the will of God, and we endure because of our love for God, for Jesus, and for others. Peter has already said, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and, what, in the eternal, glorify God on the day he visits us. 
He has already exhorted us to rejoice in the confidence of a future glory and a future inheritance, even though we might have to suffer in the present, at least for a little while. The attitude of Jesus and eternal perspective and trusting that God will one day judge justly allows us then to endure for the eternal. Second, arming ourselves with the attitude of Jesus, that eternal perspective, and trusting that God will one day judge justly, allows us then to part with the past. Again, Peter says in verse 1 and 2, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live like the rest of their earthly uh, the, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. And then he continues in 1 Peter 4, 3 to 6, saying this. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, in lust, in drunkenness, orgies, corrosing and detestable idolatry. They are, they are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is a reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the Spirit. Those in Christ with the attitude of Jesus part with the ways and the life of the past, the past life of sin, the past life of personal pleasure and of self-indulgence. Those ways, which mirror the ways of the world, are no longer a part of the Christ follower's life. Our call is to put them aside and make them a part of the past. Now, that doesn't mean that once in a while we won't fall or some old habits will creep up on us. But Christ's followers with the attitude of Jesus will make every effort to shift their lives away, relying upon the Holy Spirit and confessing when they fail those sins and those patterns of the past. Now, Peter draws our attention here to a truth that might be unpopular and uncomfortable for many today. So I think it bears some examination. In verse 5, Peter says, But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Now, there was a time when the judgment of God was a primary topic of preaching. And I would contend that it was quite far on the extreme end. However, today the pendulum, in my opinion, has swung too far to the other side, where the love and the grace of God is primary, but it's been at the expense of the holiness and the judgment of God. You see, we've lost the idea that there are consequences for our behaviors and there will be judgment for our actions. Our legal, our legal system seems to lack true consequence for those who break the law, lenient at best. And often parents or teachers and others in authority are either handcuffed from imposing true consequences or they choose to minimize the consequences of certain negative behavior. However, God, God who is holy and righteous, will hold accountable and judge each one of us for how we live our lives. Hebrews 9 verse 27 from the message says, Everyone has to die once and then face the consequences. A theologian and author Scott McKnight put it this way. He says, What makes a moral life healthy is the threat of judgment that derives from an appreciation of the holiness of God. Now, to be sure, it can be overdone, just as love or anything else can be overdone. 
But the solution to an overemphasis is not its neglect, rather it is to bring the emphasized idea back into its biblical and realistic perspective. I do not want to go to bed at night worrying about whether I will be damned by God, but neither do I want a God who is so soft that I do not have to fear Him or stand in awe of His judgment if I live in sin. In the words of John Stott, to live, work, and witness in conscious anticipation of Christ's parousia, or in light of Christ's return, and judgment, is a wholesome stimulus to faithfulness. Tough words, right? But the truth is, one day God will judge everyone and hold everyone to account. And for those who have chosen not to follow Christ, their judgment will be their eternal destiny. For those who have made that decision to follow Christ, the judgment will not be their eternal destination. Rather, it will be on how they live their lives, whether for God or for self. And recognizing this truth should motivate us to allow the Holy Spirit to work in our lives, and we should part with the past. Now, before we leave this point, let me remind us of another incredible truth. No matter how many steps you may have taken away from God in the past or even right now, it only takes one step to come back to Him. No matter where you are in your spiritual journey, no matter how far away from God you are or you think you are, it only takes one step to come back to Him. And that is simply to admit your sinfulness and make that decision to say, from this day forward, I'm going to follow you, Jesus. Now, I just quoted Hebrews 9, which says everyone has to die once and then face the consequences. But here's how that passage finishes. Christ's death was also a one-time event, but it was a sacrifice that took care of sins forever. And so, when the next, so, and so when he next appears, the outcome for those eager to greet him is precisely salvation. The attitude of Jesus an eternal perspective and trusting that God will one day judge justly allows us then to part with the past. Finally, the attitude of Jesus, an eternal perspective and trusting that God will one day judge justly allows us then to prioritize the present. Peter finishes this section this way, starting at verse 7. The end of all things is near. There's that eternal perspective again. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful servants of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength that God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Now, Peter not only tells us what we shouldn't be doing, he tells us what we should be doing. And here he lists four things. Pray with an alert and sober mind, or in other translation, being clear-minded and self-controlled. Love each other deeply. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling and serve one another using the gifts that God has given you. Pray, love, show hospitality, and serve. Now, I won't go into detail on these, only to say that those with the attitude of Jesus make these their priority. 
They realign their lives to these. Because as Peter says, the end of all things is near. As a Christian community seeking to survive and to even thrive in the face of persecution and suffering, Peter exhorts us to pray for one another, to love one another deeply, to offer radical hospitality to one another, and to serve one another. And by committing oneself to these things, you create, you build, and you sustain a community that grows in faith and is able to cope with the opposition that comes from those who reject the gospel. But these things are not only for internal benefit. By doing these things, the community of Christ sets itself apart from the rest of the world, that holiness that we talked about earlier, sets itself apart from the rest of the world, both for the glory of God and for the mission of God, as we seek to draw others into this community as well. Let me just speak briefly to just one of these aspects, the one Peter says, above all, too. We are called to prioritize loving each other deeply. Love must be the dominant Christian virtue that, that permeates our culture, permeates our attitude, and permeates our practices. It must undergird our speech and our action. It is the distinguishing mark of the community of Christ that will draw others to Christ as we live and practice true love for each other. When Peter says that love covers a multitude of sins, it doesn't mean that it covers them up in a sense that we overlook them or ignore the wrongs that others in the body of Christ commit towards us, or we hope that others forget and ignore the wrongs that we commit to them. Rather, to, when Peter says love covers a multitude of sins, what he's saying is that love forms the foundation by which we can truly reveal truth and bring true healing and lasting reconciliation. In a world dominated by division and conflict, God's people must become a shining beacon of true sacrificial love. So let me ask, do we, do you, as part of the Ebenezer family, do we make these our priority? I wonder, what would our community life, what would, our, what would we as a community, what would our life look like if we truly made these our priority? What impact could we have with each other? What impact could we have in our neighborhoods, or schools, or our workplaces, or our sports teams, our bands, or dance clubs? What impact might we have to the city in general, or perhaps even beyond, if these priorities defined our practices? What if we made a true commitment to each other? Not necessarily a commitment to coming on a Sunday morning for Sunday service, but a true commitment to one another so that we could practice these four things. I wonder. The attitude of Jesus, an eternal perspective, and the confidence that God will one day judge justly means, allows us to prioritize the present. Now, how many of you here are around 60 years old? If you have a pen nearby, write down this number. If you're around 60 years old, 13,140,000. Now, how many of you watching are around 50 years old? Write down this number, 18,396, uh, sorry, 18,396,000. How many of you are around 40 years old? Here's your number, 23,652,000. If you're 30 years old, 28,908,000. And if you're 20 years old, 
If you're in between those ages, you can maybe just kind of guess where you would be. Many years ago, Oprah Winfrey had a guest on her show that brought out what I believe was called the countdown clock. And what it would do was it would count down the seconds, minutes, hours, days, months, and years that you had left if you lived to the age of, I think it was 85, which would be a generous age for many. The idea was that if you knew how much time you had left to live, it might motivate you to make positive changes in your life in the present. You see, we count our time on earth from when our life began. You know how old you are based on your birth date. But we rarely think about how much time we have left. Now, I understand part of that is because we don't know what's going to happen at the end. We don't know how we're going to pass. But even if we assume that we're going to live to an average age of, I suggested, 85, I think if we realize how much time we have left, it would change our thoughts, our attitudes, and actions. In fact, it would change them significantly if we only considered the time we have left and we armed ourselves with the attitude of Christ. You see, instead of me telling people, well, I'm 53 years old, what if I said, I have about 32 years left to live? Those numbers I gave you are the minutes you have left if you live to 85. Now, it might sound like a lot. It was into all of them were in the millions. But realize this. Next week, if you tune in for our worship service again, your number will be reduced by just over 10,000. Peter exhorts us to arm ourselves to take on the attitude of Jesus. Jesus lived with an eternal perspective and trusted that God would one day judge all things and judge them justly and righteously. If we arm ourselves with that same attitude, it allows us then to endure the, for the eternal. It allows us to part with the past and it allows us to prioritize the present. And all of this for the glory of God and for the mission of God. May God give us the courage and the strength to do so. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is alive and active and your Holy Spirit longs to, Im to impress God's word upon us so that we are transformed by it into the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ. And Father, thank you this morning for the reminder, not just a reminder, the challenge to arm ourselves with the attitude of Jesus and so that our actions, our speech, our behavior will flow out of a Christ-like attitude. Father, Jesus took on the perspective that eternity was in his mind and that one day you will judge all things justly and righteously. And Father, I pray that we would adopt the same attitude. We ask that your Holy Spirit would form that attitude in us so that we may live for your purposes, we may live for your glory, and we may commit ourselves to your mission. Father, give us the strength and courage to do so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you for listening. Don't forget to check out our church website at ebenezerbaptist.ca. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can let us know by clicking like and by subscribing to our podcast channel. God bless you and thanks for listening.